everyone. Welcome back and thanks for joining this episode of For Your Benefits. I'm your host, Megan Henry, Marketing Director for Century Health, an industry-leading integrated health management company. In today's podcast, we're talking with Laura Putnam, founder and CEO of Motion Infusion and author of Workplace Wellness That Works. Today, we're going to talk about why workforce health and well-being is important and the unique role that managers play in empowering employees to engage in their own wellness. We're also going to be discussing how employee well-being can be affected by cultural and environmental influencers and what managers can do to drive better health within their teams. Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much, Megan. It's great to be with you. We're so glad to have you. Laura, before we dive in, you call yourself a well-being activator Mm -hmm. as opposed to a well-being expert. I'd love to hear why that is. And then if you could share a little bit about the niche that you see yourself filling in the field of health and well-being. Yeah, you know, in the first chapter of my book, Workplace Wellness That Works, is uh, titled uh, Shifting Your Mindset from Expert to Agent of Change. And while we certainly need expertise, we need science uh, more than ever, we also need to be able to leverage that and think about how we can actually change hearts and minds and cultures. And that's really where the role of an activator comes in. And so the particular niche that I am playing in this field is leveraging my background as an urban public high school teacher and applying a teacher's sensibility toward this conundrum around better health and well-being because really so much of healthy lifestyle is simply about employing those best practices that we all already know. Eat better, exercise enough, um, take care of yourself, those basic kind of practices. These are not new things that that we've never heard before, right? So again, less about expertise and more about how do we actually inspire people? How do we influence people? How do we activate people and teams and organizations and communities to actually make change? I really love that. I do think that that's a gap that needs to be filled. So Laura, at the basic level, you as a well-being activator, how do you define well-being? You know, I like to define it in a way that's really simple and user-friendly. And the way I usually present it as is me at my best. Hmm. And perhaps Maya Angelou said it best when she said, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to fully thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. So that is perhaps one of the best ways to really capture this idea of me at my best. And better health and the practice of a healthy lifestyle is really just a tool that enables each of us to become our best self, however we define that. And just like Maya Angelou defined it for herself, we all get to choose what me at my best looks like for us. So me at my best probably doesn't look like what you at your best looks like or that my kids or my husband or whoever else. Exactly. And there's certainly some universal themes around what are the differentiators between those people who are thriving versus those people who are struggling or or just surviving. It's things like we all know physical well-being, emotional well-being, financial well-being, community well-being, career well-being, all of these kinds of things really matter. But again, uh, we all need to have autonomy and choice in really casting for ourselves what that looks like for us. When it comes to our health, most of us know what we should be doing. 
Generally, we don't always do those things. You often talk about the knowing and doing gap, and you say things like knowledge and being told to take personal responsibility for your health and well-being really isn't enough. Can you talk more about that? And, and what's the driving force between this knowing and doing gap? What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, as an industry, the health promotion and, and well-being field has really leaned into the individual responsibility mantra. You know, wellness, better health and wellness is all about just taking personal responsibility for your health and well-being. And sure, there are things that we can all do. And yet, if we look at the statistics, which is, you know, just on a very basic level, we, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't know that it's a good idea to get more exercise, to <laughs> eat more broccoli, and you'd be hard pressed to find any smoker who doesn't know that smoking is bad for them. And yet, sure. even with just those three basic behaviors, less than 3% of Americans do those three basic things. So there's obviously a huge disconnect between what we know we should do and what we actually do. And so I pose this question all the time in my keynotes, in my workshops, and I ask people to consider why is it that there is such a disconnect between what people know they should do and what they actually do? And the kinds of responses that I usually get are things around, oh, people aren't motivated. They don't know where to start. They're lacking knowledge and not enough conversation around the fact that really, if you think about it, our environment and our cultures that we all operate within are really driving us toward the unhealthy choice. And scientists characterize this as so-called obesogenic environments, where the environment itself is really driving obesity and an unhealthy lifestyle. So if we just take a couple of examples, uh, you know, if you think about something like getting more active, is it really about personal responsibility? Or does it have more to do with the fact that our neighborhoods are better designed for our cars than they are for us getting fit physically active? Or if you think about what's the first thing that we're teaching our kids in school? sit and be still. What's the first thing that we say when somebody comes into our home or our office? Have a seat. So everything in our culture really revolves around our chairs and being still. <laughs> um, and, you know, we can say the same thing about any other practice around health and well-being. Uh, you know, we are literally, uh, you know, we feel this cultural pressure to always be on. And we know that um, fast food is much more accessible than the healthy option. So it's those cultural and environmental drivers that we need to be collectively addressing better than we are right now, as opposed to putting so much of the burden of change just on the individual. Yeah, you, you mentioned access. I've recently moved to a neighborhood that has a gym within the neighborhood never was really a gym goer, never really did that much. Now that there's access to it, it doesn't cost me anything. Some of those barriers are gone and it's been easier. And I have been going when I haven't in the past. And I think that that is, you know, access is so important. You think about access to healthy food. Not everyone has access to a Whole Foods around the corner. And if it is around the corner, maybe they don't have the money to buy the things at Whole Foods. So I think that you're right. I think that I knew, I know that going to the gym is good for me. I know that I need to be walking around the block. But now that things are easier and I'm able to do so, I do do those things more often. 
That's still exactly not as much right. as I should. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the Trust for Public Land, for example, has studied access to nature, for example, mm. and access to a park. And over 100 million Americans don't have easy access to to nature and to a park that's nearby. So they, we, we have things, uh, you know, wellness privilege is something to be thinking about. Yeah. Do you have wellness privilege? Do you have the privilege to work within an organization in which it's normal and it's acceptable to take breaks? Or are there organizational repercussions if you take a break um, you know, 10 minute walk around, right. uh, you know, step outside and take a 10 minute walk, for example. Right, right. That's great. Uh, you spoke earlier about cultural and environmental influencers. Can you share with me the four levels of cultural influence that you've spoken about? Yeah, I, li- I like to think about it in uh, four levels, as you just mentioned. And this is really kind of an adaptation of a model that's been out for a long time called the socio-ecological model mm. that looks at these kind of levels of cultural influence. So big picture is kind of the world that I live in. So the community that I, the 10 mile radius within which I largely operate, am I healthier because of it or less so? Mm. And then dropping down a level is the, the places I go, particularly where I work. If I'm an adult, if I'm a kid, the school that I go to, am I healthier because of it or less so? And then dropping mm. down another level are teams that I'm a part of and the boss that I work for. Am I healthier because of them or less so? You know, do I work for a boss that's sending me late night emails? And so I feel pressure from my boss to be sent to be responding to those. And then kind of in the center of all of that is, again, this idea of me at my best. What are the things that I can be doing to become my best self? But just starting to kind of reframe the conversation from one of just, I'm going to take personal responsibility for my health and well-being to instead start to think about, okay, given the world that I live in, given where I work, given the team that I'm on, the boss that I work for, how do I make the healthy choice? How do I become my best self? How do I kind of navigate those currents, if you will, uh, the currents that are pushing me toward better health and well-being? How do I take advantage of those? And then how do I work around those currents that are pushing me away from the healthy choice? So being able to take a step back and seeing those four levels and kind of identifying where you are and all of that mm-hmm. will give you the opportunity to make those decisions based on on the information. Exactly. And, and, you know, that's for the individual. And then for those people who are uniquely positioned to influence those mm. four levels, that it is incumbent upon them to take added measures to really change the container within which these individuals are operating within so that we're starting to actually change the direction of the currents so that everybody has wellness privilege, if you will. It's not just for a few, but everybody is is swimming in currents that are pushing them toward better health and well-being. Yeah, and what a great thing for people. I mean, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Laura, let's talk about your book a little bit, Workplace Wellness That Works. Why did you write the book? And then I'd love to hear from you some suggestions about what organizations can do to better enhance the well-being of their workforce? I know that's a big loaded question, but but I suspect in your book, you've got some some key things that we could discuss in that. 
You know, there's been this this question that's been going on for a long time now about does workplace wellness work? <laughs> and, for years. Uh, you know, there was a, an article that came out in the New York Times in 2014, which is the time when I was actually writing the book. And it was titled, Do Workplace Wellness Programs Work? Yes. And then it said, most don't. And the truth is that we have a unique opportunity here, which is the workplace is the place where most adults are spending the vast majority of their waking hours. So whether they're spending it, you know, in a virtual sense, like many working adults are now, or if they're actually there in person, here's a unique opportunity to really create a container of better health and well-being, to create a culture of well-being, to create an environment of health and well-being so that everybody is just a little bit healthier because of where they work. So great idea. The problem is, and what we've all discovered the hard way, is that unlike the field of dreams, if you build it as in a workplace wellness program, they, as in the people that you're trying to reach, they will not necessarily come. They will not right. necessarily engage. And in fact, the largest study to date on the impact of workplace wellness shows that about 80% of eligible employees just simply aren't are they're just opting out. They're not participating. So if we look at participation rates alone, we know that we've got a long ways to go. But um, beyond that, um, we know that a lot of people feel like even if they are participating, that these wellness programs feel like check the box or they're not really making a difference in people's health and well-being. So Workplace Wellness That Works was really, I wrote that as a nod to that question and um, really starting to uncover and share in user-friendly language some strategies that we can use so that we can take a, a good idea and actually get it to work. So some of those strategies include things like let's focus less on the individual and more on optimizing the environment and the culture around them. Mm. And let's also think about some things like can we start with what's right? How do we, that is, uh, how can we bring a more positive flavor to this? I think a lot of people mm. feel like these workplace wellness initiatives are actually really negative. It's, it starts with, let's begin with these biometric screenings, these health risk assessments that are going to un uncover all the things that you're doing wrong. And then let's fix you, which is not very motivating for most people. <laughs> and sure. Scary. And so how do we instead help people, for example, to identify what they're doing right and then build on those well-being strengths, if you will, in order to um, become their healthier self and then begin to address some of those their challenges. But those are just a couple of, of the strategies that are outlined in this book, 10 steps actually, um, so that every organization can infuse well-being and vitality into kind of the fabric of business as usual. So less about a program and more about really implementing a new way of doing business. It's almost like a culture, a culture of wellness. Exactly. But a for real culture of wellness right. <laughs> as opposed to, uh, 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 you know, pretend one. I mean, a lot of companies I've seen that, you know, kind of have the biggest bragging rights around having a culture of health. Sure, they might have all the bells and whistles when it comes to health and well-being platforms and programs, but the larger culture is one that is actually just the antithesis of better health right. and well-being. Right. 
Laura, in your book, you touch on the role that managers play. And I know that that's kind of become a focus of your work now that you do with organizations. Talk to me about how important managers are to workforce health and well-being. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on engaging senior leaders in wellness. And certainly senior leaders matter. They're the ones who allocate resources. They're the ones who really set the tone across the organization. But when it comes to the day-to-day permission giving, (laughs) if you will, that really comes down to the manager, the frontline manager. And every employee tends to really follow the ethos that is established by their direct supervisor. So you might be lucky enough to work for an organization in which the senior leaders are really talking about it, really promoting it where there might be lots and lots of programs. And yet if your direct supervisor, your direct manager isn't embodying that, isn't talking about it, isn't creating team-based systems to normalize well-being within the context of the team, it's highly unlikely that you will be engaging them as well. So whether or not wellness is part of your job description, if you're a manager, Every manager needs to know that they are uniquely positioned within the organization to either persuade or dissuade their team members from engaging with their well-being. So I guess an example of that could be if if Susie says she needs to take a mental health day and how that manager reacts to that, whether the manager is supportive or whether that manager isn't supportive of that. I think that that, those sorts of things are, are what the employees are seeing directly. You know, I was in a coffee shop and uh, a couple of months ago, and and there was a a group of young women who were in an animated discussion. And it turns out that they were all talking about their bosses. <laughs> and all of these young women were runners, and they liked to run during the day. And and each of them talked about their manager and the extent to which their manager kind of made it okay or didn't make it okay for them to run during the workday. So one was saying, oh, my manager is a runner. And so, uh, you know, she actually runs during the day. So I know it's okay for me to do the same. And then another one was saying, oh my gosh, my manager is just the opposite. So I always have to wait until after work to do it. Um, So Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, that's not, not part of that team culture. And so certainly with mental health, even more so, those managers who are really modeling, uh, caring, you know, engaging in self-care, particularly around mental health, who are talking about it. So helping to destigmatize it within the context of their team, and then are even going so far as to create some team-based systems that help to create kind of a safe harbor within Mm -hmm. the team. Uh, Those are the ones that a team members are more likely to come and talk to the boss about if they're experiencing any mental health issues, um, but also uh, ones where people are also even more likely to take advantages of resources that are available to them, like EAP. Laura, in your Managers on the Move program, you talk about how managers are gatekeepers or they're multipliers, or they could be somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what those are and explain those to me. So that's a question that I ask of of managers to consider a lot, which is honestly, where would you say you are on this spectrum between being a multiplier, one who really enhances the well-being of your team members, 
Or might you unwittingly be acting as a gatekeeper, actually getting in the way of your team members' engagement with their health and well-being? So longstanding research from Gallup shows that the manager alone likely accounts for up to 70% of the variance of their team members' engagement, both with their work as well as their well-being. And we all know, of course, that people don't leave their job, by and large. They leave their boss. (laughs) <laughs> but it also, when it comes to health and well-being, the the boss is actually uh, plays an oversized role in in the extent to which we are well. And, and in fact, um, there was a frightening Swedish study that came out showing that if you have a negative boss, that can have a real impact on the health of your heart. So your boss matters more than your doctor does when it wow. comes to the health of your heart. So when we hear people joking that uh, my boss is killing me, they actually <laughs> kind of mean it. So it's actually, you know, it's kind of something that we can kind of joke about, but it's also really serious and um, that, that managers really do play an outsized role in that. And so to become that multiplier, they, you know, the three simple practices that I've been advocating for a long time is to do speak and create. So start with yourself model well-being, kind of do well-being loudly, if you will, so people can see you doing it. Speak, which is to talk about well-being. So think about the difference between yet another email blast coming out from HR, from the wellness team about another upcoming wellness event versus your direct boss saying, hey, there's a really cool event coming up on mindfulness. I'm going to be going. Who wants to join me? Or even for One's boss to say, hey, you know, I've been really struggling with my mental health. Um, Let's have a conversation about this. And then third, to create, to think about creating those team-based systems that really help to normalize it. And so every time a manager engages in do, speak, and create, they are moving to the right-hand side of the spectrum, moving away from being a gatekeeper to really becoming more of a multiplier of well-being for their team. And I would suspect as you, as a manager, talk about these sorts of things, you're giving your employees permission to do the same. And you're giving them, whether you say, I support you, or whether you just talk about your experiences, I'm going to this mindfulness seminar, you should join, that they are seeing that it's okay, that they exactly. are seeing that it, you're doing it, so I can do it too. Yeah, I mean, you know, this permission giving is so important, especially now. So, for example, there was a study that came out in June of 2020 in which the researchers found that rates of depression or the symptoms of depression have tripled since the onset of the pandemic. Not surprisingly. So we know there's the the physical effects of the pandemic, but then all of the mental health fallout that has accompanied that. Now, meanwhile, (laughs) there was a a study that came out not too long after that, finding that half of employees are afraid to talk about their mental health with their boss. Hmm. That's a terrible combination. So again, again, you know, here's the reality of what's happening with all of us um, as a result of the pandemic and, and also things that were happening before then. And so we have these this giant influx in terms of uh, rising rates of burnout, for example. And so it is more important than ever that employees feel comfortable talking about things like mental health 
with their boss, with their team members. And managers are at the helm of making those conversations possible. Now, we know the managers can't do it on their own, that they've got to have support from the higher ups, from the C-suite, from the organization as a whole. So so let's say I'm an HR person or I'm a, I'm a leader in a company. What can I do to support my managers in supporting their employees? That's exactly right. I mean, just as team members are looking to their direct manager to, quote, give them permission, managers want to make sure that it's okay. And again, that's where senior leaders are so important because they need to be communicating to their managers over and over again just how important that is. So a couple of examples of that. Um, I was delivering a so-called Managers on the Move workshop, which is our flagship uh, kind of leadership meets well-being uh, training program that's designed for managers around how they can become this multiplier of well-being. So we're I'm conducting this Managers on the Move workshop at a company called HealthStat, which is an on-site clinic provider. And during the workshop, uh, these managers start kind of shaking their heads and they're like, you know, we can be talking about this, but, you know, do our senior leaders actually support this? And so the CEO actually came in during the workshop, this CEO, kind of a colorful character named Crockett Dale. He came in and he's like, yes, I am supporting this. He, he kind of signed the symbolic declaration of independence <laughs> in front of all of them saying, yes, I support well-being. I am giving you permission to really put this front and center. Uh, those are the kinds of things that senior leaders can be doing. Another case is Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Dakota, another company that I've been working with where we've run this program over the course of a, of a year and a half. And they actually recently changed their vision mission statement in which it is explicitly stated now, elevate well-being, elevate well-being. And so again, managers in their call to action to lead the business, to play their role in that well-being as part of that. And I think you're right. You've you got to walk the walk and you've got to talk the talk. There, there's a big difference between putting it in writing and just saying, these are the 10 things that we're going to do to help your health and well-being and we move on. But really, you know, putting your money where your mouth is and, and, and making those efforts. That's exactly right. And, you know, better health and well-being is not a one-time event. It's right. the day in and day out regular occurrences. That's a health. That's the definition of a healthy lifestyle. Right. And again, that's where the manager plays such an essential role. But again, they need to know that they have permission to really prioritize it. Right, right. Hey, Laura, we've got a lot of people who listen to this podcast that are explicitly focused on health and well-being, whether they're HR advisors, mm -hmm. whether they're benefits advisors, wellness consultants. I would love to hear sort of um, any tips or advice you have for those folks. <laughs> you know, I, those are the I kind of um, think about, you know, in terms of who I serve and the work that I do. I think about it in three buckets. One is the bucket of influencers. So, those are the people who, whether or not they're embracing health and well-being, they are in a position of influence. So these are your senior leaders. These are your managers, yep. for sure, within the context of an organization. Then there's the bucket of kind of the anybody and everybody. So, uh, you know, kind of the larger uh, work population. Um, you know, what are the things that I as an individual can do given those circles of cultural influence? What can I do to improve my health and well-being? And then there are the people who are like me. They're activators. 
They are in a role where they are kind of explicitly given the mandate to promote better health and well-being, <laughs> um, often within the context of an organization. Sure. So one, that, you know, Workplace Wellness That Works, that book was written primarily mm-hmm. to that audience. What can you do if, if you are in that explicit role? So a couple of tips. One is the one that we talked about at the beginning, which is to shift your mindset from, a, from expert to agent of change. You don't have to be the smartest person. You have to be the one who actually moves moves people. So what are the best practices of people like Oprah Winfrey? And are you studying her techniques around persuasion? Because that's the number one thing that you're going to need to be doing is not delivering statistics, but delivering stories that move people. So how do you not only move people on a logical level, but also on an emotional level? Then thinking about things like, what are things that you can do so you more strategically change the the culture and the environment around the people that you are serving? And how might you even use strategies like going stealth, which is one of the chapters in Workplace Wellness That Works, which is really thinking about recasting language in language that resonates for the organization. So for example, one company that I did a lot of work with is Schindler Elevator Corporation. And so in talking about well-being, I recast it in the in the language of building winning teams. Mm. Or for example, might you talk about energy as opposed to wellness and health. So do you as a leader or as a manager have the energy that you need to be an effective leader? Oh, and do your team members, does your team have the energy that it needs to be a high performing team? So you've got to know your employees to know how to talk to them is what I'm hearing that you've got to have enough information, got to know what makes them tick to be able to speak to them in such a way that will get them going. That's exactly right. And you have to also know the language that resonates within the organization. You know, if you're an activator that's working in an organization that's putting only a few resources toward wellness, but meanwhile, they're putting a ton of resources towards, say, safety. Mm. There's your stealth opportunity. Instead of trying to sell standalone wellness programs, why not go to safety and think about infusing a little bit of well-being in the context of the next safety training, for example? That's great. That's great. Laura, you mentioned the bucket of everyday employees. I'd love Mm -hmm. to know, do you have any tips or advice for them if they're looking to improve their health and well-being? You know, very similar to what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, to first and foremost, kind of just think about looking at those currents within their life. Are the, you know, stepping back, taking a look at what are the currents that are pushing me toward better health and well-being? How do I leverage those better? And then what are the currents that I'm going to have to to swim around, if you will? Mm-hmm. And the more that I as an individual can optimize my own environment and culture, the more likely I am to be able to improve my health and well-being. I would say another thing is for every individual to lean less into motivation because the research really shows uh, that our motivation is actually a really limited resource. And to think more about how do I just make the healthy choice, the easy choice. So the first thing that I do when I bring my groceries home is um, take out all the produce, wash it, 
put it in glass containers so that it's really accessible. And so when I have that moment of being hungry, that it's that much easier to reach for the carrot as opposed to reach for the crackers. Sure, yeah. <laughs> You're all ready to go. <laughs> That's great. Well, Laura, I really appreciate This has been such great information. I know that we've got a lot of great takeaways. Before we hop off, would love to know, do you have a website, social handle, anything that you'd like to share with our audience? Because you, you've you really shown us that you know so much great information. And I know that there may be folks who are looking for more. Yeah, you bet. And, and you know, there's just a, a um, happy to share that and, and add a couple more, you know, one more thing to think about for every individual, as well as for every activator, as well as as for every influencer, which is this idea of really casting well-being or me at my best as a gift, Mm. as opposed to a chore. And I think so often we really think about health and wellness as being a chore. This is what I do to lose weight. This is what I do so I can get healthier. And boy, does that become a drag. And instead to really remember that the fact that we can move, for example, is one of our greatest gifts. So how can we start to think about this as a gift as opposed to a chore? I love that. I love that. And also knowing that each of us can start with ourselves. And when we do, we actually can create a ripple effect that really influences not only our friends, but our friends, friends, and even our friends, friends, friends. So each of us really are change makers, no matter where we are positioned within an organization, within a team, or within a community. So those are a couple of key Gosh, things. And I would think even in the workplace, if you do those sorts of things, coworkers catch on to that and coworkers participate. I'm going for a walk. Susie, you want to come with me? Those sorts of things. I know in, in my office, we had some, some coworkers that we're eating Subway every day and the Subway was in the building and I I would go out and I'd eat other things. And I'm like, man, they're going to Subway and they're doing it right. And so more of us started going to Subway. And then there was a group of all of us that, that you know, started to eat healthier during lunch because of them. And we saw how good they were feeling and how happy they were with it. So I think yeah. that makes a big difference too. Yeah, we can all take heart in the fact that we are already a change maker. And Mm. so how do we do that? How do we be a change maker in a positive way? So the ways uh, that you can stay in touch with me, uh, motioninfusion.com is the website, as well as lauraputnam.com is the website. So you can also find me on social media, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. And the handle is on Twitter is at motioninfusion. And on Instagram, as well as on Facebook, it's Laura Putnam Author. And on LinkedIn, you can just uh, look up under Laura Putnam. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This has really been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Megan. That does it for today's episode of For Your Benefits. Thanks to all of you for joining us. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about Century Health and Well on My Way, visit our website at centuryhealth.com. Have a fantastic day.